This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The best of the Joan Hamburg Show is on the air. Best of. And you know... I love to eat and I love to explore food options, go on adventures. So when I was in Brooklyn a week or two ago and visited the Yellow Door, and that is an interesting neighborhood. There are a lot of Syrian families in this part of Brooklyn. And I had remembered that many years ago, my friend, the late, incredible Sally Bijou, had taken me to this little place where she said they have delicious, high-quality Middle Eastern, and because she kept a kosher home, the food is glad kosher. Loved this place. We bought all kinds of goodies that were hors d'oeuvres, plus they now offer shipping on their foods, and they do kosher catering as well. Their takeout menu ranges from vegetarian to dairy, and it's called Suda, S-E-U-D-A Foods. It's at 705 Kings Highway in Brooklyn. The website, Suda.com, and the phone is 718-375-1500. They have delicious salads, main courses, prepackaged meals that you can take with you, and they tell you how to heat it. So here's just because I didn't know what to order. So I'm giving you what the community told me and promise you, delicious. Kibbe, K-I-B-B-E-H. It's a family of dishes based on spice ground meat, onions, grains, very popular in the Middle East. And it can be made vegan too. They offer a lot of varieties with beef. They have mushroom, potato, Great for takeout and very reasonable. Cigars. Oh my gosh, these, my husband used to love these. They're one of the most notable dishes of Morocco. And Moroccan cigars are made savory or sweet. And at Suda, you can get vegetable, beef, and potato. And of course, we took out. And then I was with someone who doesn't eat meat, but she loves fish. And she, like, inhaled that batter-dipped fish. So delicious, she said. It was nine seventy-five for a half a pound. All kinds of orders. When you go to seudasuda.com, you'll find out how to ship it. They usually do FedEx priority overnight, so you get it the next day. But you know what? Have a little adventure. Do what we did. Go to the Yellow Door. It's so much fun. And then take yourself, they'll tell you how to get there, to this little shop. At clo- we went on a Sunday, and it closes at 3 o'clock. So we literally, we had to call them to say, we're here, we got lost, stay open. So we went in, and when you first go in, you're going to think, what is the little tiny place? Really good. Everything we bought was delicious. Of course, we ate a lot of it in the car going home. We couldn't resist. 
but this is on my list, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And it's nice to be in another part of our great area and maybe do things that you haven't done before. You could even throw in the Brooklyn Museum. Lots of good things. So enjoy. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with lots more. You're listening to The Joan Hamburg Show every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. talking to Italian lawyers that thankfully speak English better than I speak Italian. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we, over the, the last several years, have renovated the, the, this stable and the stable keep um, quarters into my childhood fantasy of a villa. We call it Villa Isidore. Uh, oh. Isidore was a Spanish... A man that was sainted, and he is the saint of agriculture and bricklayers. And my grandfather was a stonemason, and we have all this farming land. So we thought that was kind of perfect. It's Isidoro in Italian, Isidore in it Spanish. It sounds so great. It's, uh, that's what we named it. And it's the inside is great, and we can stay there. We're going to go back for, for New Year's. Um, and be there at New Year's to to, to welcome in a, a new and hopefully blessed and good year for, for the planet, not just us. But we're going to go back there uh, after Christmas um, and watch uh, the little bit of snow we get there fall. And it, it it's not 100% done. There's one room still needs a bathroom and there's stuff we want to do outside. But, but yeah, you're there. it's livable and it's there. And it's weird. And you deserve it. Oh, thank you, sweetie. Rachel, you. I'm happy for you. And we hope that this new year is the beginning of a really happy, safe new year for everyone. Rachel Ray with her new book, This Must Be the Place. The book is divided into different sections and amazing stories and recipes for almost everything that you want to make. Really, the book made me feel so good, and I know it's going to make you feel good, and it's got over 125 recipes. All the best to you and your husband. Thank you, John. I hope this year such brings a, you all good fortune. Congratulations thank you. on a new thank season, you. and thanks for being you. Rachel Thank you Ray. for being so gracious and giving us some of your time. Thank you. Bye-bye, Rachel. We'll talk again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. More to come. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The best of the Joan Hamburg Show is on the air. Best of. All right, everyone, welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. And it seems like Mitch Abel was just here the other day, but no one writes faster Ben Mitch and books fly on the best-selling list. Yes, one of the best-selling authors in the country. 
He's a broadcaster. He's a writer, plays, movies, syndicated columnist. His books fly to the top of the bestseller list. 40 million copies I read in 47 languages. Don't forget Today's with Maury, which absolutely is a classic. And I don't think any book, any memoir has ever sold like that one. Mitch and his wife have done incredible work when it comes to charities and changing people's lives, including an orphanage in uh, Port-au-Prince. His brand new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, a novel and a really fast read. I'm telling you, I picked it up and next thing I know, I was almost finished and it read the whole thing through because you that's what happens. You have to see exactly what happened. But let me start with something other than the book. What happened during all these uprisings in Haiti with the orphanage, with the children? Are they okay? Well, thank you, Joan. It's good to talk to you again. And uh, thank you for asking about our kids. So you know, we, we have 53 kids in our orphanage in Haiti, and I'm there every month. Uh, for the last 12 years. So I've witnessed what's happened with Haiti, and it is really very, very Depressing. dangerous oh. now. I'm, I'm actually uh, leaving this weekend to go back again, and uh, there's a lot of kidnappings out in the street. Uh, it's very difficult to get from point A to point B. The gangs are kind of controlling the major part of the country now. And our kids, sadly, have not left the third of an acre uh, grounds that we have in almost two years. They haven't been outside, uh, and that's no way for kids to be raised. You know, they're very happy in the facility, and they play, and we do everything we can, but it's a third of an acre. It's 53 kids and 40 staff members. Everybody's on top of one another, and we, we used to take trips out to the beach and to the mountains right. and take kids for ice cream and things like that, and we can't do any of that. It's a, a very dangerous, very poor place, but we keep working there, and our kids, thank God, are, are, are thriving. But, Mitch, what happens to you when you get off that airplane, even with guards? How do you protect yeah. yourself getting there? Because you must be a hot commodity for those kidnappers. Well, first of all, I don't announce when I'm coming. Uh, and then, uh, sadly, we have to have bodyguards in an armored vehicle that uh, meets us very quietly uh, and uh, takes us straight to the orphanage. And I never leave the orphanage the whole time I'm there. And then the only other trip I take is from the orphanage back to the airport. And, you know, we have to go at the right times and take the right routes and pray, uh, you oh, know, no, because pray. I'm not going to I'm not going to not see my kids. And, uh, you know, we just have to pray that uh, that, uh, you know, we're spared from that. And, and hopefully that more importantly than me, it's, it's the you know, the people who are being kidnapped there are not mostly these. Missionaries, I know that made headlines here, but mostly they're just average Haitians. Right. We're just Most of pulled them in have the no street. money at all. Nothing. They just pulled Nothing. off. Yeah, they're kidnapped for $20. Oh, gosh. And are the, one, the most recent kidnappings, which made big news here in America, as you know, still isn't resolved. They don't have any of them back, including the children nope. that were part of the kidnap group. That's right, including an eight-month-old baby. So it's really tragic, and I wish that uh, America and the United Nations and other countries would rise step to in the occasion. Because, yeah, because nothing's going to happen on its own there. I know. Do you ever think about moving the whole operation to the states temporarily? <sighs> oh, gosh, Joan, I would 
pick pick the kids up and carry them myself if, if that could. was possible. Yeah. But it's not legal. You know, you can't take the kids out, and they make life very very difficult to try to get a uh, to try to get a visa. And and the, it's the United States that makes it difficult. Alone, uh, yeah. You know, they they don't they don't let you just bring kids to the states. I mean, you got to go through an enormous amount of paperwork, even for a medical situation. So. No, I wish I believe me. I wish I could transplant the whole thing. But, but the point is for the kids to learn to make their own country better, you know, um, and that's what we're trying to raise them to do. I'm talking to Mitch Album, and Mitch has a brand new book called "The Stranger in the Lifeboat," and this book is a little departure. It's basically about survival, and it's about. Uh, a bunch, well, the people in the lifeboat, there are 10 whom we meet and become involved with. But it's about, for many people, a once-in-a-lifetime trip aboard the yacht owned by a billionaire. And he invites some of the leading people in the world to be part of this think tank on water. Out of nowhere, the yacht explodes off the coast of Africa. I think it's in the Atlantic Ocean. And we're taken right. on this journey by a narrator. And it's really, the narrator finds a book that one of the people had kept. I'm going to let Mitch explain to you. And it's also, it raises a lot of questions. In the midst of all this, they pluck someone from the ocean, a young guy who says he is the Lord. Is he? And explain. Yeah, well, you've done a good job of sort of setting it up. The yacht explodes and everybody's killed except these 10 people, half of whom are the rich guests and half of whom are staff, you know, cooks and, and deckhands and the like. And they're in this lifeboat for three days uh, and nobody's coming for them. And there's no rescue. They see sharks in the water. They're running out of food and something to drink and they're crying out for help. And then all of a sudden, they see this body, as you pointed out, floating in the water. They pull him in. It's this young, nondescript guy, average-looking. They pepper him with questions. He doesn't say anything. And finally, one of the guests says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And, of course, you know, they look at him and roll their eyes. And, you know, he just looks like this punk kid. And they say, okay, yeah, sure, you're the Lord. What are you doing here? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? You were calling, so I came. And they said, oh, so you're here to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everybody in the boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And this sets in motion, you know, what happens for the rest of the book as the days go by and things get more desperate and they, you know, go lower and lower on food and water and they're, you know, floating, drifting away further. And some of them kind of choose to believe that he is who he says and other ones are convinced no you know their their money is going to save them and otherwise at its core Jonah I wanted to write a book about asking for help uh which I've had to do many times in my life uh and it seems to me that when we ask for help you know especially from God or the universe or whatever you believe in we kind of expect it to like we're ordering a sandwich in a deli we exactly. expect it to be there in a certain amount of time and look like we expect it to and if it isn't we're upset or we think we didn't get what we wanted. Uh, but my observation in life is that, you know, the universe, God, it doesn't work on our timetable. And many times when you think you're not getting what you want, 
10 years later, you look back on your life and you say, well, you know, I really thought that my prayers were being denied. But now that I realize if that didn't happen, then this wouldn't have happened and that I wouldn't have met this person and married them and had the kids. So I guess it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Well, if it's the best thing that could have happened to you 10 years from now, then it is the best thing that could happen to you now. But we don't recognize that. And, and, and this is kind of brought home in this lifeboat where, where here comes a guy who says he can save them and they all go, ah, you know, you, you don't look the part, you know, you don't look like Jesus. You don't look like uh, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. You know, you know, you're not in. And, 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 and the guy, he gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He falls asleep a lot. So they're just convinced, you know, well, we're being ignored. And yet the help might be in front of them all this time. And that was a really interesting idea that I wanted to explore. Well, and everyone asks for help in a different way. And right. as you point out, has a different version of help. You know, some part the seas if you're the Lord, you know, and others just right. save me. It's a fascinating concept, and especially when we are at a time in our own country with all that's going on, that religion, even though people may not under realize that, is on the wane. So, yeah, it is. And it is on the wane and church attendance and synagogue attendance and all that is at an all time low. And uh, and yet we seem to be asking for help more than ever, especially during the pandemic. And I, I, I have to think that this book has been received, it's been out for a few weeks and it's 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 doing better than the last four books that I've written combined, you know, and I think it, it probably think? has to it has to do with the fact that everybody during these last couple of years um, has has been asking for help of some kind. And, uh, you know, and, and for me, I was coming off having written about losing a child, right. which, uh, you know, we talked about in my previous book, Finding Chica, was about one of the kids from our orphanage who we adopted and. She had a brain tumor, and, uh, and you after two save years, her of, no matter what, no, we couldn't. We tried, and uh, we could travel around the world for two years, but we lost her. And I was very angry when that happened. You know, angry at the universe, angry at God, saying, you know, there can't be such a thing as a kind God when they can't be kind to a seven-year-old. But as the four years plus now have passed, I've sort of healed in that, and I've I've come to, you know, like there's 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 a moment in the book where. Uh, you know, I get to put the questions that all of us, Joan, would ask someone who claimed to be God, you know, uh, if they really were in front of us and you say, okay, you get 60 seconds, ask me any question you want. I'm God. Well, I've got to put those questions in the mouths of the passengers on the boat. Uh, so at one point, one of them asked, for example, well, if you're God, do you hear all prayers? Do you answer every prayer? And he says, I answer every prayer. But sometimes the answer is no which is what I have found to be true in my life. Or, of course, the question that everybody would ask, why did people die? You know, why did you have to, right. why did you have to take somebody from me? And at one point, one of the passengers confronts him over this because his wife died and he's all Say, you know, why? He's crying. Yeah. And he, yeah, why did you take my wife? And the answer is, well, when someone dies on earth, we always ask, why did God take them? Why don't we ask the question, what did we do to deserve them? What did we do to merit their love, their sweetness, their memories? Didn't you have moments like that with your wife? And he says, yeah, every day. And the guy says, well, those memories, those moments were a gift, but not having them isn't a punishment. And he says, "If we, I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying. 
And for me, you know, that was a very healing thing to sort of conclude and write because that's how I feel about our little girl. that We cry for her every day and miss her, but she's not crying. She's not in pain anymore. And I, I think the idea of, of, of finding help and healing, you know, and realizing things may actually be happening for the best, even when they don't feel like that, um, is something very comforting to people. And maybe that's why people are embracing the book. Are you religious? I am faithful. Uh, you know, I was raised Jewishly, and I still I still participate in the Jewish religion, and I don't I don't attend services on a weekly basis or anything like that. But I was very well educated in it when I was younger, and I I I absolutely believe. You know, I believe in God. I believe that there's something beyond this world. I, I wrote the book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. It's kind of hard not to, you know. Exactly. Uh, but uh, that was based on uh, an uncle of mine who died, you know, momentarily and came, was brought back and told me that he saw his relatives waiting for him at the edge of the hospital bed. And ever since then, I've always believed, well, that must be what happened. So, you know, I'm I'm both faithful and spiritual, and I do think that we're here for a bigger purpose. And I do think that if we try to do things for the good, eventually things work out for the good. It doesn't happen in five minutes, you know, but hey, for example, my wife and I got married late. We always wanted to have children. Didn't happen. We just figured, all right, it's one of those prayers that just isn't going to be answered. 15 years later, I end up taking over an orphanage. Now we have 53 children in our life and including we had a little girl who was our little girl for two years and they were the most amazing two years of our lives. So we did get our prayer answered, but it took years you know, and if you see the long picture, as as, as they kind of do in The Stranger in the Lifeboat, then it's a lot more comforting than to go through life thinking, oh, nobody's listening to me and, you know, the universe is denying me. Right. And when you look, I mean, it isn't like you're finished writing books, but every single book has become huge. When you look back, can you really believe your own story? I remember the early days when you were writing sports stuff and right. doing great. And right. then suddenly you come out with this book and your life changed forever. Right. Tuesdays with Maury. And, and, and that's, a, Joan, that's where I learned the lesson. Because, you know, when I wrote Tuesdays with Maury, the experience, I wasn't going to write a book. I, you know, an old professor of mine was dying from Gary's disease and I felt guilty because I hadn't stayed in touch with him. So I went to see him what was supposed to be one time. And I have to tell you, you know, I wasn't excited about going that one time. It was more like an obligation. And And then when he said, will you come back next week? I was like, oh, how am I going to turn him down? Come back next week. Okay, I got to fly to Boston again next week. And again, it felt like an obligation. And it took some time before I started to realize, wow, this is really benefiting me, you know, personally. Not professionally, just personally. I'm learning so much from this man who's dying. And, and then I decided to write a book to pay his medical bills. It wasn't a career move. It was to pay his medical bills, and I was going to go back to sports writing. Right. I, we, nobody figured anybody would read that book. Right. And now so look at what's happened. With, yeah. I, I was denied by most publishers in New York. They told me, nah, we don't want to publish. It's boring. It's depressing. You're a sports writer. I only found you know one in the end who was willing to give us the money to pay for his medical bills. And uh, I was going to go back to sports writing, and then instead it changed my life forever. That has to be something bigger than me. And so I look at that, you know, as, as at the time, it just seemed like a burden and an obligation. 
And now I look back on it and it was, as I said, the best thing that possibly could have happened. And I think many people have that story in their lives, not just me. Yeah, right. It was your fate. But what about music? You had bands. You were really involved in music. Yeah, I was. And uh, I did not succeed in it. Uh, I was there in New York doing the starving artist thing like everybody else. Right. And uh, But it was because I didn't succeed in it. And I worked at nights uh, as a musician. And I had my days free. And I happened to see the Queen's Tribune. If some people may still remember that the Queens Tribune where I was living, I picked it up at a supermarket and uh, I looked at the bottom and they said, if you have free time, we could use some people to help us with our newspaper. And I was just, you know, music was going nowhere for me. I was working at night, but I wasn't getting where. So I wandered over to this newspaper and I volunteered. And uh, my first writing assignment was (laughs) parking meters on 108th street in, in Queens. Why were they going up a nickel? And that was the first thing I ever wrote. And and yet if I hadn't done that, Where you know, you if I hadn't be? walked yeah. over there, I'd never have become a writer. And that was because music wasn't working out. So even though I love music, that apparently wasn't meant to be my no. path, but it afforded me the chance to get into writing. It's fantastic. It's really an unbelievable story. I thank you so much, Mitch, the stranger in the lifeboat. And, of course, Tuesdays with Maury, the best-selling memoir of all time. And this book is going to take you and make you question a lot of things and also make you rethink your own fate and your own life. All the best to you and your wife. We'll talk very soon. Thanks, Joan. Great to talk to you. You too. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC, so don't go away. The best of the Joan Hamburg Show is on the air. Best of. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Maybe because I think it was the New York Post that ran a story on very expensive designer resale handbags that people started asking us about it. Well, let me tell you, you can buy and sell authentic luxury items, including high-end designer handbags, from a couple of sources. Fashion File, F-A-S-H-I-O-N-P-H-I-L-E, and The Real, R-E-A-L, Real, R-E-A-L. It's become an investment, like real estate for some people, and a must-have fashion accessory. And these gently used designer vintage bags are the rage. And you can find them in the colors and the styles that you can't find new. I was shocked at how expensive they are. Hermes Birkin bags are very difficult to buy new. And making them is very desirable. Remember Sex in the City years ago, 2002, where Samantha longs for a Birkin bag, and then at a high-end New York boutique, she's told the bag is $4,000, and there's a five-year wait for this bag. The sales rep said, it's not a bag, it's a Birkin. And being Samantha, who has to get what she wants, she tells the boutique the bag isn't for her. It's for her celebrity client, Lucy Liu. When Lucy finds out, 
In the show, what Samantha has done, she fires her and keeps the bag for herself. So who can believe $4,000 was what a leather Birkin cost in 2002? And now, 20 years later, the new price of the Birkin is over, hold on, $12,000. And that was an article in InStyle magazine. And resale ones start at around seven. Some of them fall in the 12,000 range on websites like Fashion File or The Real Rail. You should take a look at these resources. I mean, truthfully, guys, I could never spend that ever on a bag. But people do, and they are investments. Fashion File, you can go on to fashionfile.com, started in 1999, and it's the granddaddy of luxury resale websites. They're one of the best known. They specialize in designer handbags and accessories. Very picky. And they had, when we checked, about 400 and something Hermes Birkin bags for sale. The starting price, $7,250. The most expensive on their site, $220,000 for a crocodile Himalaya Birkin. What can I tell you? God bless. The Real Real, go on to T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-A-L.com, was founded in 2011, very popular. And they accept more designer labels than Fashion File. They buy and sell home goods and Five Art. And it's one of the largest online markets for authenticated resale luxury goods. And they have a lot of Birkin bags on sale. They won't tell you what they have, but they have plenty. Their lowest price was $7,020 for Hermes shoulder Birkin in orange. Their highest price, I find it shocking, was $175 for an Hermes 2013 crocodile Birkin in good condition. If you can afford it, good luck. I wish you the best. But take a look at these sites. They'll keep you amused anyway. Fashion File, F-A-S-H-I-O-N-P-H-I-L-E.com and The Real Real, TheRealReal.com. Sorry, guys, I'm looking at the clock. It's three o'clock, so we have to say goodbye. But don't forget, we do this every Sunday starting at two o'clock and bring you all the information that you can use. Enjoy the rest of Sunday. I'm Joan Hamburg. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.